listening to our New Chapel podcast. We're for people to connect with God and be raised to new life in Christ. Be sure to connect with us at newchapel.com and on social media to stay up to date on everything happening here at New Chapel. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to the first part of a brand new series called Love Thy Neighbor. If you have anything to take notes with, go ahead. Now's the time. Pull that out. Although we're not live streaming our services anymore because we don't want to enable people that are lazy to come to church, we are offering this online. And so if you're watching this message via video, share it. It upsets the people at Facebook. If you have your Bibles, St. Matthew, if you would, chapter 16. Y'all doing all right? Good to see you. A new series that we all need. I want to start it with a valid question. And that question is this Why do we need church to engage in our faith? Why is this a necessary component to us being Christians? Jesus actually began the talk about church. Uh, He was taking his disciples on a trip, he was taking them to an area called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. In fact, I think we have a picture of that. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was way out of the way. Uh, In fact, this was so far out of the way that uh, the disciples knew that something was up as they were traveling towards this area. And it was actually uh, the son of one of the Caesars. His name was Philip. And uh, there was already a Caesarea. He wanted to create a new capital city. And so being the creative little doobie he was, he came up with Caesarea Philippi. Uh, It was a whole compound, a whole town, really a city, active city. And the cave that you see up there on the left had a a fountain in it, a natural spring, and uh, they dedicated that particular fountain to the god Pan. Uh, In the Greco-Roman mythology, uh, Pan was kind of a a mischievous god, uh, a little bit of a trickster. He was also sexually deviant. Um, He would descend down into this uh, spring as mythology would go, and the only thing that would resurrect him is, you know, illicit acts that are outside the bounds of marriage uh, with another god, the little minx, and, and it would make it so Pan could resurrect from the dead every year. And so part of the worship that you would see at this temple was ritualistic temple sex. And so as Jesus is taking the disciples way out of the way to get to this particular area, uh, the disciples see the writing on the wall. They know where they're going. And no holy Jew would ever go to a city like Caesarea Philippi. It was sin city, like by definition. In fact, as I say the word sin city, there's one city that's coming to everybody's mind in the room. What is it? White cloud. Oh, I'm, whatever. <laughs> I have to, it's a rule. Um, no, you, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about Las Vegas, right? And, and so these, these Jews, they never would have gone to Caesarea Philippi, never. Like that, they would, in fact, they had a covenant with their eyes not to look lustfully. And so as they're going there, you would have seen people in the act as part of temple worship for this Greco-Roman God. And Jesus actually travels 28 miles by foot out of the way to take them there and it would be like being at the airport and you're, you're supposed to go catch a, a flight and, and you're in the Vegas line and you're like, we should not be here. This isn't right. That's where Jesus introduces the concept of church to his disciples. St. Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They 
replied, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? I love that passage. Uh, it's encouraging for me. I'm a leader. I have staff meetings, you know, and I'm a communicator. I get up in front of people. And Jesus is having staff meeting, if you will. He's like, how are we doing? How's the message getting across? Who do people say that I am? Well, they think that you're somebody else, you know, and, and, and they think that you might be awesome, but they really don't know who you are. And, and so he redirects, but I think it's pretty interesting that these disciples have been with him for a long time and have every opportunity to hear about who Jesus is, and they're still not getting the message. And it encourages me sometimes because some, sometimes I leave church and I just wonder, did anybody get anything out of that? Was I preaching to myself? And if Jesus has those kind of days, it helps me to have those kind of days. And honestly, Jesus should have fired his campaign manager if the message isn't getting out because he's preaching to thousands, but it's not getting across. So Jesus being Jesus, the greatest leader in the world, he decides to use it as a learning opportunity. And he looks, I'm sure, in my holy imagination, he looks at Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? Peter, never one to be quiet, says this in verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Maybe your translation says Simon bar Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not overcome it. Now, this was not, if you've ever visited the south, this was not Jesus giving Simon Peter, now Peter, it wasn't giving him a God bless your heart. Because southern people, they're so sly. Here's what they mean when they say bless your heart. Is God bless your heart and your stupid head. You know, that's what they really mean when they talk to us. Jesus was actually commending him, and he's saying, hey, you got this from God. And then what does Jesus do? He changes Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah, changes his name from Simon, son of Jonah, calls him Peter. He says, you're Peter. Peter, uh, literally in the Greek, is Petros, and it means like rocky, okay? So bear in mind, it's my own theological disposition. I believe all the disciples had handlebar mustaches. They were wearing leather. They were tough dudes, okay? Now you have rocky in the crew. We're not going to call you Simon anymore. Your name's, if anybody's named Simon here, God bless you, but I now call you Rocky. Okay. <laughs> Jesus says this, on this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. People have asked, is the rock Peter before? And I'm going to tell you, in a way, because they called him Petros, which means Rocky, a little rock, you could even say a chip off the old block. And so if he was calling Peter a piece of this rock, he's really saying this to all of us, that we are all part of that. In fact, they call us Christian, which means little Christ. You are a piece of this as well. So it's not that Peter is the rock, but he might be saying, hey, you need to identify with this, and, and we can glean something from that. The rock, though, the biggest rock is Jesus was told by Peter. He says that you're the, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the rock. The rock is the revelation that Jesus Christ, he's Lord, he's Messiah. And that's what Jesus is saying that we build this whole thing off. This is the first time, this is the first time that Jesus uses the word church. It's the Greek word ekklesia. 
Now, ecclesia means this, a gathering, an organized congregation of people. And that might seem a little foreign to us, or you only think of church in one way. But they had churches in Jesus' day. They had them. They were all around. What's a church? It's an organized gathering and a common cause. I'll give you a great definition, a little bit about a Christian church, what, the, what a really biblical definition for that would be. But they had churches. So when Jesus went out and he's looking at this rock and he's saying, up on this rock, I'll build my church, he's saying his church because they knew what a church was. And in fact, there's churches in this culture that, that you know of, you just don't think of them in that way. Do you know the largest church in America is the public school? They're organized around a common thing. That's to mess up your kids anyway, but <laughs> praise God. <laughs> I would write a retraction, and, but it's not a lie at all. Anyway, that's a church. You see soccer clubs. You see football teams. In fact, how about this? How about even beyond a public school? How about Grand Rapids Football Club? You ever seen those guys? Part of a big soccer team? You ever seen their parades? You run from their parade. It's so intense. I mean, they are, they are scary when they're coming down the road. That's a church. It's an organized gathering, a congregation of people with a common purpose. The Eagles, the Moose Club, these are things that, that, that are churches of our day, and there were churches in Jesus' day, and what he's saying is, I'm going to build my church, my gathering, it's going to be around a common thing, and that's the fact that I can change everybody's life. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. Does that make sense, everybody? And so, that, that truth is what Jesus wants us to rally around as we gather. Number one, write it down. Jesus founded the church out of a relational move of God. He had relationship with these disciples, and he's saying, perfect. This is what this is going to convert into. Why would he make that distinction? Because the opposite is true oftentimes. We see people try to start a church and then fill it with relationship later or try to make people rally around something different. No, he's saying, listen, this is going to start grassroots. This is going to start relationally. Jesus creates an organized calling, a gathering of people with a common rally cry, and he's essentially saying, I get it. I took you out into the middle of nowhere. I get it that my messages aren't really catching on and the series really isn't getting traction because they think that I'm my cousin. You know, I, I understand. But listen, this movement's going to take off. This church that I'm building is going to take off. And it's going to take off to the spot that even my death can't stop it. In fact, write it down, church. The church, we need to realize this. We're a group of people called to move forward. And I would say together that death doesn't stop us. In fact, we have great record that when Jesus died and he was raised from the dead, you know, that didn't hurt his movement. It took it and it scattered it around the globe. I think about the persecution that the early church faced. That did not work to our disadvantage. It worked to our great advantage. The, the, the persecution spread the gospel. And so we have to realize that, that this is a powerful thing and it's a movement of people. It's a church. Now, Hundreds of years into the church, it becomes something that's jaded and political, and it's corrupt. Uh, people are money-hungry. They're power-hungry. They want to control people's lives. And so what they do is they begin to, they begin to leverage the church that was a, a movement of people. That it, was a, it was an organic thing in many ways, a family. And sure, these families had buildings. They had, they had structure and organization. In no way am I saying that it's not organized, but... They tried to get into that structure and make it into something that it was not to leverage for their own personal gain. Now, as they did that, it, it turned a lot of people off, but a lot of people didn't know better. And they begin to use the pagan word for church 
instead of what the Bible was written in the New Testament, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, they started to use the pagan one, which is literally temple or meeting place. So the thought of church being a building, that is pagan. Write it down. Jesus did not come to merely create a place. Jesus came to move among a people. Now, let me be very clear. Every family should have a place to have shelter, have a, have a roof over their head. And that is for your family, I mean, whether you rent or whether you own. Uh, and that is true for this spiritual family. We need to have a place. I am not anti-church buildings. I'm just saying the church is not a building. We need a place. In fact, I think, are we in like fourth winter right now, Matt? I don't know. Like, like, it would be really difficult for me to be preaching right now, and we're all out in the parking lot like a bunch of hippies and try to be like, let's get some work done. It's difficult, okay? So there's nothing wrong with a building. Churches should have buildings. Churches should be able to have a house to be able to house the programs of the people. But the church is not a building. It is people, and that is a huge, huge deal, a, a massive difference. Now let's jump forward for a little bit to the 16th century. The corruption was so awful. They perverted the church so badly that they started to keep the Bible out of common languages that people knew like English. And they only had it captivated in Latin. They wouldn't let the people have the word of God. There was a man named William Tyndale. Many of you in the room have Tyndale Bibles today. William Tyndale started a, a printing press and started printing the Bible in common English and the institutionalized church loved him so much for his contribution on the go team that they strangled him and burned them at the stake. But every death in Christ is followed by a glorious resurrection. People sympathize with William Tyndale, and that's why you have a Bible in your lap with his name on it in a common language. It began to go out throughout all the world. But unfortunately, many people still have this idea in their head in denominational churches and in groups all around this country that the church is a place. Write it down. The church is the locally gathering, many-membered people of God. Under God-ordained authority, where the gospel is rightly preached and the ordinances are rightly administered. What are the ordinances? Baptism, communion, things like that. Who's godly authority? On contraire, this guy up here is, you know? Like, it's, it's in order. We're not hippies, but we are a people, not a building. That's the big difference. And we are locally gathering. So you have, you have the church all over the world today, billions of Christians. There's, there's pastors waking up in the underground in China and at their churches in Pakistan and all over Europe and in Africa and South America and America. There's the church, but the local church is something that every, every Christian is called to be a part of. That's, that is the local church. Now, I'm going someplace with this. If it's church, if it's ecclesia, it is locally gathering around one revelation. And come on, it is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. That's the focus, the foundation. That's the bedrock. That's the rock. And we build everything off from is the fact that Jesus is Lord. We rally together, keeping Jesus magnified. Okay, I got to move on. So, backtracking to Jesus, he gives his life on the cross. He's buried. He raises from the dead. And he begins to preach to his disciples over the course of 40 days. And he's trying to get the movement, some movement. In fact, if it's not a movement, it's just called a stand, okay? And God hasn't called you just to take a stand in this world. It's to, it's to move forward. And so uh, as he's getting ready to ascend to heaven, this is what it says in St. Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. 
Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. I, uh, I read the Bible with a little bit of a sense of humor, because right after he said those words, lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age, he ascends into heaven. And I think, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking that's hilarious that you'd even put it that way, but have you ever thought about that? How many of all, when you first accepted Christ, or maybe at some point in your Christian walk, you thought, man, I'd just love to sit down with Jesus at a table. Let's talk. Anybody? I thought I would love that. I have questions that I want answered. But think about it for a second. If it was that way, you would be in line to go talk to Jesus your entire life. By the time your turn in line came up to go talk to Jesus, you'd be dead. You wouldn't even ask him anything. And so when Jesus ascends into heaven, he does something very powerful. Bodily, he ascends, but then he sends his spirit into every single believer. And so the Bible says that he'll lead you and guide you in all truth that you can have your questions answered. Do you see it? Somebody say amen. Now, what's the rally cry of what Jesus is trying to do here? It's the Great Commission. It's that this thing would move. We would go into all the world, that we would preach, that we would see people get saved and become disciples. And so that's why, write it down, at New Chapel, we will do anything short of sin to reach God's lost kids. We take it serious. We're not going to sin. We're not going to go to, even to the edge of it. But I'm here to tell you, we're going to do things to reach people who are far from God. Every once in a while, somebody asks, like, oh, Pastor John, I'm a visitor here. Why do you have these LED lights? Do you need LED lights to do church? And let me just tell you, no. I grew up at Rusty Nail Baptist Church. Baptist, B-A-P-T-I-S-T, baby. Rusty Nail is a fake name that I made up for your humor. You didn't get it. But listen, it was in the country. We had wood pews. We didn't have upholstered wood pews. That was the bougie Southern Convention that had that junk. Wood. We bought them in the 1880s. When they wore out, that's when we're going to get new ones. The sewing club, not fake, sewed pads that we could have and move around on the chairs. We had books that we sang out. We get all those books. <laughs> Number 321, Rock of Age. And that was a brand new song to all of us. I need none of this to have church. You can put me right back at Rusty Nail, where I think I'm probably still on the membership roll, and, and I'd do fine praising the Lord with 11 of us in Jesus. I need none of this. But let me tell you, you live in a city that has something called Art Prize. You live in a city that has in our suburbs Herman Miller and Steelcase and Knoll and some of the most creative firms. Don't you think that this culture deserves a church that would reach out in a sight and sound way? Let me put it this way as well. You think, well, I still don't think we need it. Okay. We put a little bit of money in this from LED strip cords that we got off from Amazon. You think it's a big deal. Okay. What were they putting their money into 100 years ago? Woodworking, carving. You see, it, it's just trying to reach the culture that you're in. We're called to reach these people. And so I, every once in a while, talk to people who come here who are a little bit older. I think Ed and Sheila, they're in their early 50s, and so I've told them when they came here, thank you, because the music is different than what you grew up in, and maybe even what you like. But I'm telling you, you'll be hard-pressed to find somebody who's going to worship their heart out more than Ed and Sheila Colgrove. They've had to give up so much of what church looks like 
but to be engaged in the living body of God. That is Not that we look like the world in a worldly way. It's that there are some things that are non-negotiable, and then there's a lot of things. The church can be fluid in culture. We need to reach people that are far from Can I hear an amen, somebody? Come on. We'll do anything short of sin. So we're not going to sin. We'll do anything short of that because we want to reach God's lost kids. And listen, people say, well, Pastor Joe, I want more of the presence of God in this church. Pastor Joe, I want revival in this church. And if you mean revival, that we would have extended worship and that you'd get goose pimples and think you heard voices, listen, that revival's not going to happen at this church. But if you mean revival that a sinner got saved and the presence of God is evident in the room, you want to have the presence of God. It's going to follow his word. He said, I am with you always. Go, right? You want to feel the presence? Go. Get up. Speaking of that hymn, get off off your old blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Get up and go, and you'll feel the presence of God in your life. Say amen. That's what we need. We need that in our life, that activity in our walk with him. Luke, Dr. Luke, records the similar account. It's the same moment. It's in Acts, Acts 1.8. What does it say? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. It goes on to say, to the end of the earth. So all your Holy Ghost goose pimples and you heard something, if you got, and I am the number one God, I want God's presence. I've had moments that have been deep, but listen, it is so that you can be a witness, that you can be empowered. We get the Holy Spirit, it empowers us to get out of here and go, get out of these four walls and make a difference because we're a people, not a building. It's so, so important. Write it down. The presence of God is not designed to be containable. That is to say, it's not just for you. It's for you, but not just for you. People who really experience the presence of God tell other people about Jesus. They're talking about their faith. They're sharing the gospel with others. Now, when Peter gets a hold of this, it changes his life. For those of you that like extra homework, uh, Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. It's when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Amazing things happen that day, things that this church stands on. But as you get towards uh, verse 22 of that chapter, you'll start to read a shift. You see, nobody gets saved until somebody stands up and preaches. You can have all the move of God and a Holy Ghost move, but you need the preaching of the word. And Peter does it in verse 22. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know and he was talking to people that had seen these miracles this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross verse 32 God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it verse 36 therefore let all Israel be assured of this God made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and and Messiah. The early church had a very simple message. <laughs> we all killed him. God raised him from the dead. We witnessed his power, and so can you. Rinse and repeat. Pretty simple sermon series. And, and for those people that say, ah, well, the Jews killed Jesus. No, listen, every person that has sin in their life, you killed Jesus. We all did it. We, they were just there at the time. You'd have done the same thing. But God raised him from the dead, and they said, we're witnesses of it. Now somebody says, well, Pastor, I did not witness the resurrection of Jesus. What Peter was doing here is he was saying, listen, you can be a witness too. And it is this, you can witness that resurrection power in your life. You don't have to see it with your eyes in order to believe this thing. The Bible says we walk by faith, 
not by sight. And so, number two, write this down. Jesus' church is fueled by a relational experience. Now, for some people, when I even say the word experience, it puts you on edge a little bit because you think that experiencing God is put at odds with God's word, and it's not the case. They work in tandem. One complements the other. It's a huge deal. It is not going to be your theological perspective or an argument that you're really good at that really is going to convince someone. The disciples, think about this, they heard Jesus' teaching for three and a half years, and yet they doubted the resurrection. What was the big change for them? Write this down. The disciples were not just fueled by what Jesus taught, and, and teaching is important. The Word of God is paramount. But the disciples were fueled by who Jesus was and what he did in their lives. They experienced the word of God. That's what made it real. They heard it before and didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. When they experienced it, that's when they became so bold that actually most of them gave their life for the gospel. It wasn't the fact that they wanted to get it and couldn't. They didn't get it until they experienced Jesus. Wow. Now, there is a real deception in the church, and I want to deal with it, and I want to deal with it head on. Three different vignettes of what it looks like. The first one is this. Some people try to make church just the institution. It's the institution. We are the institution. We are the elite. If you want communion, you better come here because we have the edge on communion, and we're the institution. If you want to go to heaven, you got to do our thing. How would that work here? If you want to go to heaven, take New Chapel Connect. I mean, that's something that I want to say, but I can't, right? The institution. You will serve the institution. Bow to the institution. Then there's another group of people, and they're right. Bless God, they're not reaching anybody. But when they meet together, it is the assembly of the right. We all know what's right. You're wrong, we're right. And they're all high-fiving each other on a Sunday morning. They would never do that in the house of God, but, but that's what they're doing. When the preacher goes up there, they're all just saying that they're, you're right. It reminds me of that movie back in the day, maybe you watched it, very spiritual, called Spies Like Us. Doctor, 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 doctor. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. And here's the thing, that feels really good, no babies. And so the high five club, they've got the edge on being right or so they think. They don't think any of us are going to be in heaven, but thank God they're holding that down. They're not reaching anybody. They're not baptizing anybody. No marriage is restored. Nobody's getting off from drugs. But at least when they come together, they open that good book, and in their vignette, their perspective of the word, they're right about everything. And listen, there's nothing wrong with being right. I am, but, but, but that's not the focus. Okay. The third group is this. <laughs> they're the people that want to say, well, nature is my church. This, 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 my faith in God, I'm even a Christian, right? But it's very personal. It's personal. It's for me. Because that's why Jesus died. And, and it's all about them. Let me just tell you, there's no such animal in the Bible. You can't live your faith as an independent Christian. You're called to gather. Amen. Now, how is this even a big deal, Pastor Joe? Why bring this up? The churches that closed their door for a year were one of those three. That's who they were. They were the agreement club. Everybody's right here. They were the institution where they were the people out, bunch of hippies in nature, <laughs> saying that, that I don't need the church at all. And they closed their church. Hey, just quick question. Not in my notes, but just, just a question. 
What do you preach when you open your church after six months, a year being closed? Faith? Is that the series we're going to talk about? The God of the impossible? The miraculous? God heals today? Lord Almighty, they're going to talk about healing? The Bible says that there's a form of godliness, but it denies the power therein. And it says avoid those. That's not of the faith you're at. You understand me? The church is meant to be a people who gathers. I remember when all of that junk was going on and they wanted to shut us all down. I was having a foot surgery and I was going to have Kaya and Pastor Brian preach in uh, the next two weeks. And when that all happened, the government went up and said, we're going to have two weeks to flatten the curve. And if I wasn't like straight up out of it because of medicine from a surgery on my foot, I would have said, don't trust the government, you know, like as I was going down for the surgery. (laughs) It's like the Admiral Akbar anointing on my life. It's a trap, you know, like (laughs) we were two weeks down online because I'm going to be submissive to the government. And then we got ourselves, ironically, a transistor from China. And uh, we started doing drive-in church because the Bible says in Hebrews not to give up the assembling of ourselves together and so much smo- so more so as the day is approaching, talking about the day Jesus comes back. I don't even think a pastor has a right to lock the doors of the church of Jesus Christ. Who are you? You didn't open them. Not that I'm upset or anything. Okay. You cannot convince me that you just eating more of the Word of God alone is going to be enough to carry you through. It wasn't. They closed their doors. Philippians 3, what does it say? I want to know. I want to understand the Bible, but then I also, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. In other words, for the person that has ever conveyed to you that when you accept Christ, just act right and go go to heaven when you die, that is not Christianity. The fact of the matter is God has saved you into a supernatural faith. And that is to say that when you accept Christ, you can experience the mighty power, that resurrection power, that lift in your life. And you'll be a witness of it yourself. And I'm telling you, that is where the power is. So Ecclesia, this gathering new chapel, we desire to lead people into a spiritual relationship with Jesus that wrecks your life. (laughs) Squad goals. I, I show up. And I have a license to do this. You're like, Pastor Joe, you're meddling in my life. Right. Exactly. You're stepping on my toes. Listen, my grandma was in vaudeville. I am tap dancing on your toes. I'm all over you. I'm going to put something on you Mr. Clean can't take off. Why? Because in this, it is not institution. This is the gathering, the church. We're going to do some family business. We're not going to be the family that that hides things under the rug. We're going to go there. We're going to talk about stuff. Say amen, somebody. It's what you need. It's what I need. Let me tell you what the institution does, what the people do when you start doing things a little bit different than the way they do it, because that's right, right? They get upset when they see God move. You want chapter and verse? I'd be happy to give it to you. John's Gospel, chapter 9. Jesus heals a blind guy, and the Pharisees say, well, he did it on Saturday, so it's evil. Is he a sinner, they ask? Blind guy who now sees says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know whether he's a sinner or not, but I know this. I was once blind, but now I see. 
So listen, listen, a lot of those churches, they think evangelism is you going into all the world and starting an argument about evolution. Right? I'm going to prove, and listen, I'm a young earth creationist I'm, I'm, to the core, but that's not evangelism to go out and fight with sinners about evolution. In fact, they might actually, even if you think you're so learned, they might come with an argument you don't know how to talk your way out of, and you might lose it. Well, what then? No one can argue with a changed life. You don't have to go and prove something. You can go and say, hey, look, I was blind. I was addicted. I was angry. I was frustrating, and I was frustrated. I was anxious. I was depressed. Nobody knew. I was blind. Started going by the church. I accepted Christ. I'm not really where I want to be yet, but where I'm at is so good. I'm not where I was. God's changed my life. I'm blind, but now I see. You don't need to give them all of your arguments and hermeneutics. You don't have to try to get deep with them. It's funny sometimes when some of y'all try to get deep. You're like, oh, listen. You want the presence of God cross the golden menorah with this over here in the, the scrolls of Revelation. And if you get that revelation, that's when the Spirit gets it. You're a joker. I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. God changed my life. How about this one? I've heard this one at this church. I was an alcoholic. Now I don't drink anymore. Argue with that. I'm free. Talked to a guy this past week, divorced for three years, remarried the same wife. Come on, Jesus. Go into all the world. Move. Don't be a standing institute. No, go. Go, go, go. And that should be our story. Write this down. Our gatherings should not be religious rituals, but real experiences with Jesus. Do I need the lights? No. I need God's spirit like I need my next breath. You have to encounter his presence for yourself, and that's when you'll really experience the word. Wow. So the movement explodes. It goes all around the world. People are getting saved. Local ecclesias, churches start to gather together. They're making a difference. It is turning the world upside down. The devil kills one of God's most powerful, like a, uh, how to put it, Stephen was not like the disciples. The disciples, the Bible says, were ignorant and unlearned men. They were country boys. They're from my hometown. Stephen was learned. He knew the scriptures back and forth. And, and through a series of events, I won't bore you, but he was killed. If you read the book of Acts, Acts is actually a whole book about the principle of one-upmanship. The devil kills Stephen. God takes one of the devil's big boys, Saul of Tarsus, and turns him into the apostle Paul. You're going to kill this person? I'm going to raise this up. You're going to try to take this area? I'm going to do it. You've got a, a little mount over here to the unknown God. I've come to preach the unknown God. It's the principle of one-upmanship where God always is going to take that next step. You can never out-give, out-do, out-give the power of God. So significant. But in this season, persecution begins to descend on the church. And a group in Jerusalem, not everybody, but they were Jewish people. And, and, they, and listen, they lived a very holy life, a very moral life. And they're seeing Paul and Peter begin to reach out to Gentiles. What's a Gentile? Non-Jewish person, okay? Like a non-believer. 
and these Gentiles are getting saved, and they're rejoicing, but they're saying, we've been keeping the feasts, and we've been keeping the moral life, and we've had, a, we've had to ritualistically cleanse ourselves of all these things and have a diet that we had to follow. These guys can't do that. They need to become Jewish first, or at least they need to keep the law. They got to keep these festivals. They got to keep these moons. And so this tension breaks out within the church, and honestly, it was really divisive. <laughs> Unlike Congress, there was good people on both sides of the aisle with a really good argument of why their point was right. And so they decided, we need to come together and have like a council, a summit, uh, a congress on this ourselves and decide, what are we going to do moving forward? Is this going to be something that's outside in and we need to still keep all these feasts? Or is this going to be an inside out thing? You can read about it for those of you that like extra homework. It's in Acts 15. They all gather in Jerusalem at a church that the Apostle Peter is pastoring. He feels like he needs to lead this out. He doesn't have skin in the game. Don't forget, he knows God's word. But even Peter wrote in 1 Peter that the Apostle Paul, everything's right, but he says some things that are hard to understand. And so he wants to hear all the arguments, and he thinks he's a person that can help make a judgment. It's his church, and so he's going to do it. So he's listening to all the arguments of these Jewish messianic believers that have become followers of Christ, and he's listening to the Apostle Paul, who's telling these stories about just average people that were Gentiles that accepted Christ. And he stands up, and authority needs to stand up, by the way, when there's controversy. And he stands up, and he makes a judgment about all of it. I'm going to read that in a second, but listen. What was going through his head? I think I know. 19 years before this council, before this summit where they're trying to figure this out, where was Peter? He was with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi. He had to be thinking, what would Jesus be doing right now? What did he mean this to be? I know that we're not building the church off from me. I'm a man. I know we're building the church off from the rock that Jesus Christ is Lord. But why in the world did he take us to Caesarea Philippi? And I think it dawned on him. Throw up that slide one more time. The temple of Pan that they had was where Pan would descend into Sheol. Sheol in Greek is called Hades. What do we call it in English? Hell. What did Jesus say? That the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Upon this rock, wait a second, what was he saying? Two things. He was saying, I'm building it on the revelation that I am the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, but I'm going to build it right on top of all of Sin City. All of the dysfunction of mankind, I'm showing up right in the middle in town square upon this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so you might be living this life where you're like, oh man, I didn't even want to come into church. I thought it was going to catch on fire. The, the roof was going to cave in. You don't know the kind of life I live. God wants to set up shop right in the midst of everything you're going through. I'm not perfect, Pastor Joe. You are in good company. I'm not perfect. I am forgiven. And friend, God wants to go into the depth of your filth of your shortcomings and establish his church there. Wow, do you see it? That's the power of God. That's where he wants to set up shop. Write it down. Church, whew. 
Jesus' church is for people far from God, and we need to realize this. At New Chapel, we're for people to connect with God and be raised to new life in Christ. That's the vision of this house. It is not for perfect religious people. This is not an outside-in change where you need to clean yourself up before you can come to church. You come here with all of your junk like the rest of us. And God is faithful and merciful and loving and kind. And in fact, he doesn't even want to deal with you in the currency of your sin. He wants to get that out of the way so we can love his kid. Friend, that's your God. And so Jesus introduced this in Caesarea Philippi, and Peter had to be thinking, You know what's amazing about this? Read in between the lines. Peter was always the one to pop off when he was following Jesus. Always the one to say it first. Right after he had that great interaction with Jesus, he also said something stupid, and Jesus called him Satan. And it was very funny, okay? (laughs) You see Peter sitting back and listening. You can see what being around God will do and change you. My God, some of the stupid things I've said in my life. He's listening, and it hits. The Bible says that he stands up, Acts 15, verse 6. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood. He addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts. Verse 11, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to accept Christ the same way I did. Oh, but I'm tore back, Pastor. That's the only way to come to him is with all of your junk, all of your your shortcomings. But we all get saved the same way, and it is by the incredible grace of our God. It's all to, through, by, and for Jesus. And that, my friends, is a church, a movement that can change everything. Pastor Joe, what does that have to do with loving my neighbor? You didn't even read the verse. Come back next week and I'll let you know. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for meeting us in this place. God, I thank you for your spirit. You're talking to your kids. God, to that person that does feel unqualified, that feels rejected by religion. God, to that person who feels like they are not enough. I I pray, God, that you'd minister your love. I know that you are. You're so faithful to do it. God, to that person who feels like they are not good enough, God will make you good enough through Jesus. God, I pray for my church that we wouldn't find our faith in the old Rite Aid that we made into a church house. God, we would know that we're a people. God, your authorities in this house God, you're moving in this place and you're changing people, making all things new, and that we can rally around the fact that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God, I thank you that you change lives today. I pray, God, that if there's anyone in the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, help me to find them in Jesus' name. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for one more minute. I want to talk to you. How are you doing? Is your life right with God? The Bible says that When we call Jesus Lord, what does that mean? Lord Lord means boss. It means that you get to the spot in your life where you've gone through enough that you realize you're not such a good boss or king or Lord over your life, but God is. The Bible says when you call Jesus Lord, you'll be saved. What does that mean? You'll have eternity in heaven. You'll avoid a Christless hell. 
But listen, eternal life doesn't start when you die. It starts the moment you accept Christ. So for some of you, the peace that you're looking for, it's you finally giving up on being the God over your own life. So we're going to pray. Give you the opportunity to do that. If you mean it, the Bible says you'll be saved. If you say it like poetry, you will just do another religious act and you'll leave here the same. But I sense in my heart that there's people that need this, that are ready to be right with God. Only ways through Jesus, friend. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Pray this out loud with me, church. In fact, everybody pray in support of those people that are accepting Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross in my place for my sin so I can be forgiven. You raised him from the dead. This I believe. So with my heart and with these words, I confess Jesus Christ is my Lord. I surrender now. Jesus, I call on you. Come into my life. Forgive my sin. Put your spirit within me. I receive all that you have for me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for making all things new. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, can we give it up for those people that accepted Christ? Come on, somebody. Now listen, the reason why we get excited is because we know that the decision that you made is going to change your life. You're going to have that peace you were looking for. And we want to help you along the way. So listen, there's public things like baptism And then there's private things like what you just did. I'm not going to embarrass you and call you to the front. There'll be prayer people at the front. They'd love to pray with you. But listen, what I need you to do is to fill out that connection card that we talked about earlier in service and check the box that says, I accepted Christ. Here's what we'll do. We're going to send you a note in the mail talking about next steps that God has for you. God has big things for you, the least of which is to fill out that card. If you came with somebody, and when I said heads bowed, eyes closed, and you peeked, Number one, I give you absolution, my son. But number two, help your friend out to fill that out. They need the information you know. They need that information. And so one more time, church, let's support those people that accepted Christ today. Come on, somebody. You can stand up on your feet. Did y'all get anything out of the first part of Love Thy Neighbor? I hope that you did. A couple of quick announcements before we dismiss today. Uh, The first one, I want to let you know that New Chapel Connect is happening during both services. If you're saying, Pastor Joe, I'm getting tired of hearing about that, well, go to the cotton-picking class. I'll stop talking about it. Go team. We are having a mandatory meeting 15 minutes after we dismiss today. It'll be in this room. We have lunch for you in here. We have child care back there for your kids and lunch for them. Everything's taken care of. If you don't come, I'm going to haunt you, okay? I need need you to come to this. It's a big deal. We're going to celebrate past wins. We're also going to be talking about future vision moving forward. And we have a surprise that you're really going to like in this Go Team Rally Point. Don't miss it. It's today, 15 minutes after we dismiss. Uh, I want to talk to you about some of the changes we've made with new kids. You might have noticed we have a guest services table over there for kids. That's the perfect place for those kids that are brand new to church. So if you see any families, and here's how you know. They're looking around like this, like, where am I going? Help them to get there, sign their kids up. Also, if your kid has a birthday or some sort of celebration in life, let them know we have free ice cream for all birthdays and for first-time visitors. Now, Holy Week is coming up. Palm Sunday is on April 10th, and it's a New Chapel tradition. If you haven't been here for a while, we do Palm Sundays on Palm Sunday. That is ice cream. 
not theology. And, uh, and so we have a build your own Sunday bar for every age. Yeah, come on, somebody. Good Friday is April 15th at 7 o'clock. That'll be a Friday night service. It'll be 60 minutes long. If you've never been to one of those, they're really powerful. I think that you'd enjoy them. Easter's on April 17th, and the week after that, we're going to be hosting baptisms here. Now, invite people to Easter. Here's one of the reasons why. We are getting to the spot, church, where we had to make a change for the first time on Easter Sunday. We are going to be having three service times. Come on, somebody. Pretty cool, huh? And so 8 o'clock, 9, 15, and 11, and that means some of y'all need to be waking up early on Easter Sunday because some of the people that have never come to church in their whole life, they're going to be sleeping in, and they're going to come at 11 o'clock. And so just be thinking about that. Is God speaking to you about maybe going to an earlier service? We're going to be packing them in in Jesus' name. Isn't that exciting stuff? Guys, give it up for my beautiful bride. Babe, why don't you come up here? We love you, and we're excited about what's coming up in the next several weeks. Bring somebody next week. It's a perfect series for those that are de-churched or maybe never been to church before in their life. We love you guys. Would you lift your hand for the blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine on you. Be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And as you go, have a great week.